don't speak over here, of course, you get it to mind one of the most famous letters that were ever written by a Jew. Harambam wrote this letter in order to support, as you well know, the community of Teman, which is now undergoing certain kinds of forced conversionary pressure. That's the major issue over here, that the Islamic people now want the Jews of Teman to convert to Islam. Harambam's job over here to write, quote, a polemical letter, unquote, in order to get them to think about that which they are doing, to strengthen them, to energize them, and to very carefully <clears throat> deal with this threat in a most responsible way. I'm not, of course, intentionally revealing to you what Hanambam's final answer regarding this particular is all about. I'm not going to tell you right now until we get to the end, which is another 15 pages, whether or not he wants them to convert Islam as a charade, or in fact to commit martyrdom, to be willing to give your life to your religion. That's the choice they have to think about right now. And our mom's job over here is to get them to the right answer to that question. We will not reveal at this point what Harambam's right answer actually is all about. And after finishing this essay in under 10 or 15 pages, <clears throat> we then want to compare his official halachic works with this polemical letter. Remember that not always are those two the same. The written word that he gives us and communicates in a polemical context would not necessarily be the same as what he writes in the official codified Jewish law, when you are allowed to commit martyrdom, to die for your religion. Harambam speaks again gloriously about the, the Yemenite community, what a history they have, what a wonderful tradition they have, committed, understanding, knowledgeable, whether it's true or not true, or only words of strengthening them, okay, it could be that also. We don't have to worry about that particular issue one way or the other. And of course, <clears throat> he spoke to them about the historical attacks upon the Jewish people. First you had those people that forcibly tried to change the Jewish people. Ruffians. They tried to change the Jewish people. And yet those the intellectuals. They also tried to change the Jewish people. There was all kinds of ta'anot. The philosophers. The Greek thinkers. Tried to challenge the Jews on their own intellectual level. Now we have a new cut. A new group over here. The third group over here. Which is a imitative religion called Natsrut Christianity. Yeshua Nutsri, and he has his own tahbula, his own strategy of trying to change the Jews. And again, <clears throat> what's most amazing about this whole context is that this very day you have still the Christian church is still trying to convert the Jews to Christianity. You still have hundreds of millions of dollars spent on this. I just read the numbers a couple of uh, weeks ago. $300 million is spent on trying to convert Jews either to Christianity or to convert them to Jews for Yeshua. Jews for Jesus, which is the same exact thing from our point of view. And their success is extraordinary. You have, conservatively, 100,000 Jews who have converted. The New York Times reported 100,000 Jews. The literature that I read that says closer to perhaps to 500,000 Jews that have converted to this Jews for Yeshu kind of movement. They have hundreds of synagogues throughout the country, throughout the world. And they go on and on and on with them trying to convert the Jews. So Haram Bam's words over here are very strong and very powerful against this this plot to change the Jews. So, what's gone to a thousand years ago was true two thousand years ago and it's true to this very day. The attempt on the Christian world to reign in the Jewish people. Remember, we rejected their founder. As long as we're successful, as long as we're strong, then that is a thorn in their theological side. So, he deals, A, with Yeshua. Although the Jews of Teman are not dealing with Christianity, they're dealing with Islam. But Rambam wants to create a situation over here of Guilt by association. Why is it by association? If they Jews agree that Christianity is a false religion, then you also see why Islam is also a false religion. 
In other words, not only are we dealing over here with oppression and the question about a false religion, we're also dealing with the people that are now questioning is in fact Torah, Mitzvot, and Judaism the true religion or not? That's a question they're questioning. When you're under the pressure of the gun, when they're talking about converting your children or you killing your children, which is what martyrdom may require, then you want to be sure that this is the true religion. So many were questioning, is in fact our religion the true religion or not? So Adam wants to create a situation where they'll agree, of course, that there are false religions out there. Christianity is one. Oh, we all agree with that. Well, Islam is another false religion. And we'll see as we go along how he attacks this religion. And again, what's amazing that we discussed last week, that Harambam calls that after Yeshu, and he's showing this pattern, it goes on and on where there are false, Messiah, false religions, where they go on and they try to attack us. So after Yeshu, false personality, Ahmad Harad Mishuga, he calls him a crazy man. How does he call him a crazy man? In a public letter. So the answer, we spoke about why he called him a Mishuga, based on the Pesukun Hoshaya, or because he had visions, he had imaginings, he had all kinds of flights of fancy. Some of you may have seen the program last Wednesday on Islam, Muhammad, on PBS, an internet program. How sweet, how gentle, how kind, how sensitive. Critically analyzed, two days later and before, by the Times and by the Post, uh, Daniel Pipes, who is a Harvard-trained uh, personality, who tore to shreds. How dare they publicize such false nonsense about a religion. Tell them the truth. And obviously they had an agenda. It was funded by the Saudi, by the Saudi bank. It was funded by prominent Islamic personalities. And therefore, it, it shaded a different way. Okay, they put the best foot forward. Harambam is not over here, of course, going to do that. He calls him a shugam, based on the Pasukan Oshaya, or based on his flights of fancy, which this program described. How he took off with his sus, with his Malach Jabri'ilu, Gabriel, and he went to Yerushalayim, and he went to the heavens, and he saw all kinds of extraordinary signs visions. That's crazy. Haramam calls him Meshuggah for that. But how could he call him Meshuggah in a public context? The answer may be, either, I don't know, he's not worried about it, I'm calling him Meshuggah because he's crazy, and I want you people to be aware of that. Or, Haramam is saying, and we are understanding, that that term in the original Arabic, Mishnun, let's call it, might have different social, cultural connotations than we. We think the word crazy means crazy. But the word Mishnun might, be, might mean to them inspired one. Or even sharper, which I didn't mention last week, which I, just, I thought of, might be a double entendre. In other words, for the Jew it might mean one, one thing, and for the Islamic person who reads this, it might be something else. In other words, in Arabic, the word mejnun might mean for, let's say, the Jew, they, they, they understand that as the word meshugat, which to us has cultural connotations, which means crazy. But for them it might mean, for them it might mean, one who's inspired to great flights of intellectual and imaginative fantasy, which means he's chosen by God. So that's a possibility. Uh, interesting, the name Janine, it's, it's a derivative of, Mish, of Mejnun, or Jen. So, so Sartre, in his work, uh, The Stranger, has a personality called Janine. So, of course, he's from an Islamic context, Sartre, he's from North Africa someplace, and you wonder whether he intended that or not. It's used as a positive name in the book. But was it a double entendre intended? This might be that case, where a name could mean one thing in one context, another thing in another context. As, for example, the word Goy. The word Goy by Sfaradim means a Gentile. Nothing pejorative is intended. He's a Goy, he's non-Jew. Good. In the Ashkenazic context, 
a guy, as they pronounce it, means you're the lowest of the low, the, the lowest rung on the ladder. You're, you're a guy. How could you? If you want to tell us, I remember one particular conference we were at seminar, and some Syrian, I think it was Ashkenazi, because they both, had gone on uh, at the, from the hotel, and they were drinking on the beach. The little beach, they were drinking on the beach. One of the teachers goes to them, how could you do that? Like, goyim. That's the Ashkenazi, you know, so... To him, the, the lowest thing you could do is to leave the cell to go drink on the beach. What kind of, what are you, you're the, what's the equivalent in English? You're the riffraff, you're the, um, yeah, you're, you're the worst of the worst. The trash, white trash, right. That's w- the way that it would be used in a Ashkenazic context. But we don't have that connotation. To us, the connotation culturally is a non-Jew, Gentile, not negative. To, a, to an Ashkenazi person who has suffered persecution from the Goyim, his point of view, a guy is a, the worst of the worst. Similar to perhaps, you could challenge this, the word Abed. Is the word Abed pejorative or not? People use it as a noun, which means a person who is a black person. It's not, when you say the word, Mr. X, there's the word, oh, give, it, give it to the Abed to do something. doesn't mean that he hates it. I know it's his best friend. It might be his best friend. But a, a, an outsider might say, oh, it means Abed, it means slave, it means it's pejorative, it means black. I know what it means. How is it used? In Arabic, in I know what it means in Arabic. In, in Middle East, it's used. The the is, is the there, there it's used negatively. So when you but use it negatively, negatively, use it negatively. Right, exactly, right. No, that we know. What does Khadamah mean? A maid. See, even the word maid is the same issue. Is the word maid pejorative? No. That's no? That's yes. My, my wife does not let our children use the word maid. Housekeeper. Right. So communities could have different connotations. I believe that when men that I know that are s- sweet gentlemen who have friends who, that, that are black, they say, you know, they use it as a noun, as an adjective. It means slave is an adjective. They use it innocently. Yeah, I, I call the Abed and he's coming over an hour to babysit. Some do. You, you may not, but some do. What do you know? you never heard it that way? Never. You think it's always negative pejorative? Yeah. No. Because otherwise you use a name. Not necessarily. The martyr. The no, it could be, but... You, so you, you say give it to the Khadam, Oh, in that case... You already lowered it. Okay, in that case, but, but, not, but, not, but not everybody has that. That's your shot on that word. Not a name is negative. When you use the word Abba, do you mean it negatively? That he's a horrible human being? Dark. It means dark. It means give it to the black guy. It means dark. <laughs> yes, yeah, what it means. It means give it to the black guy. Exactly. I mean, How do they get black? A what? How do they get black? I didn't ask them the question. I'm not, I'm not yeah. going to either. Then you find out what he means. get to the bottom of it. So, my point is that terms in different cultural contexts may have different implications for different communities. That's an obvious point. To call a Jew in certain cultures, to Jew a person is to cheat, to be low life. Other cultures, it means a person of nobility. We had a, we had a teacher who was Italian in Hillel. She was telling the teacher room, she grew up in San Juan, Italian. She says, I, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you these people, she tells these people, that to me, to say, I, I had a lot of good Jewish friends, but if somebody said to me, he's a Jew, or to Jew somebody, meant to cheat them, and it's the lowest of the low. She says, I can't get used to it in the school over here in Hillel, First, first year teacher, that you that I'm talking to Jews because that meant to her something that's uh, horrible and evil and, and cheating and dishonest. To us, there's never a connotation whatsoever. So the words. Uh, w- I was a dictionary. I don't know. 
The Oxford dictionary. The Oxford dictionary has it. Oxford, Oxford, Oxford. The Jew means the chief. Yes, it's still there. It's still there. Of course it is. There was a court case. 1987, 1977, there was a court case where, where a, in England where a man lost business because the dictionary had the word to Jew means to cheat. They argued defensively, saying, what do you mean to Jew means to cheat? That's the usage. We're only reflecting what society uses. We're not, we're not, we don't want to hate us like Jews. We're not anti-Semites. That, that's, that's a usage. So, but we're offended. It's hurting us. Similar to, should the dictionary have the word, the N-word? I don't want to say the N-word. Right, that N-word. It's the use that people use. It's pejorative. Should, should the dictionary reflect that or not reflect that? The blacks don't want that there. We don't want to be called that. We don't. Yeah, yeah, and reason. Of course, this goes back to so years, years, right? Correct, they do. That's correct. Okay. Oh, okay, right. Maybe you're right. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah. Pejorative, it's not negative, right? It's not, it's not the proper English. Oh, okay. It's yeah, slang, 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 right? But my understanding was that that letter was written in Arabic, but uh, Hebrew lettering. Oh, correct, Judeo Arabic. Yeah. Yeah, everything he wrote was that way. He didn't write Arabic characters. Correct, but but it's a public letter that that you might share with your friend. It could be public. I mean, it, it's a... That's an interesting question. But could so, you be secure enough that you're writing something to a community that's 300, 400 miles away that no ab is ever going to read this? Now, you might be right. <clears throat> you might be right. <clears throat> and I might be wrong that you use this very pejorative term that my, answers, my answer might be that, that it's culturally distinct. A word can mean one thing in one culture and another culture. That's one possibility. But you might be right. Sorry? Majnun. No, you didn't, you have to look. No, no. How do you know? Because you use it in. Cause, correct. In, in the 20th century in no, Egypt, it was that way. Correct. However, correct. But I have a. Oh, that's interesting. It's positive, you mean? That's interesting. That, that is, no, Majnun meaning you don't learn from him. Right. In a way. But it's not negative necessarily. It's how you use it. Well now wait. So my only point now would be is that, that I have two dictionaries, two Arabic dictionaries. One is Hans Ver, who is a Western personality, who wrote a fantastic used modern Arabic dictionary. I also have the Hava dictionary, which is on medieval Arabic. It's two different dictionaries. Right. Medieval it's a thousand years difference. So the term a thousand years ago might have been different. I'm not Swearing by this. I don't know if this is the case or not the case. I'm saying it's just strange uses. Or your point might be well taken. We might say that, in fact, simply, without any of this double intended meanings and all that, simply he uses the word Meshuggah, meaning he expected he not to share with anybody. It was a closed community. And even more so, the question would be, I'm going to challenge in a second, did Arabs read Judeo-Arabic? This is called Judeo-Arabic, not cursive Arabic. I'm sorry? Some did, some did. So, okay, good. So maybe the Ramah said, most Arabs don't read Arabic at all, and they certainly don't read Judeo-Arabic. But contrary to that, is that we have in the Karaganism multiple works, multiple works written in Judeo-Arabic by and about the Sufi mystics, for example. So somebody's reading Judeo-Arabic. Only the Jews, who wrote Sufi, which is Islamic, Sufi is Islamic. Who wrote the Sufi mystical works? Sufis. They wrote them for the Jews, because the Jews read it, they read it for the, for the, for the Arabs who read Judeo-Arabic, 
That's a major question. First of all, we do know that there were Arab scholars who studied Moran Ebuchim in the Judeo-Arabic. So there were Arab personalities who did in fact teach Moran Ebuchim to Jews, leading to the Jewish conversion to Islam. Gorton has another, found another letter like that in the Cairo Geniza as well. So there were some Arabs, no doubt, who read Judeo-Arabic, and it's, um, it would seem to be that some read it. So then we come back to this point that he used it as a closed community. Nobody's going to share with any other Arab, and therefore he wasn't afraid because it was such a limited possibility. Okay, it's sort of like if we were to write, let's say, in Hebrew now, a letter to somebody else. I write it in Hebrew. No non-Jews read Hebrew. Five years ago, there were many Christian scholars who read it and understood Hebrew. Nowadays, uh, I that's wrong. I'm wrong. Put it on a Jewish daily, and it'll get read. Say something negative about the United States government and the Jewish daily. Jewish daily is Hebrew, you mean? Hebrew paper. It will be so read. No, but you're right because yeah, no, I'm read in my and known immediately. All I'm not so sure. Nowadays, yes, maybe in those days, no. But no, there are, of course there are there are Christian scholars who study the Tanakh in Hebrew. They know Hebrew, but they don't know really modern Israeli Hebrew. They, they know biblical Hebrew so much. They don't know modern Hebrew, so that might be different. But you might eventually may come out. But again, it's a small community. There's five thousand or ten thousand souls here, closed community, at war with the host environment the Islam, they're not going to share this with them. So, that might be the simple answer to this question. Let's go on. So, then he tells us over here, of course, that uh, the Navi Daniel on page Kof Kathir, which we had read last week, already predicted this is going to happen. You're not anything new. This is another bump in the road. Daniel <coughs> predicted there's going to be an imitative religion, a false religion, that looks and smells like us, Jews, but really it's not. It's a false religion. Daniel says, and of course, he predicted all of this, and he told us that this particular religion is going to try to come and take over. It's going to have some success. And he has, this, which we personally read last week, the Neopetic Zion, that this, this uh, has three horns, and it's going to defeat the three horns. A new horn is going to grow, we had read last week, and it's going to defeat this new, this new power, namely Islam, the Rama sees it as Islam, is going to defeat the other three powers, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Good. All that we had read last week. Now, we, we had all the way to the, we're up to the page on Kof Kaf Zayin, which you have on the left-hand side, right? Are you with me? And, of course, Harambam is going to emphasize that with all of these challenges, the intellectual assaults, the physical assaults, the Christian assaults, all of this is going to be a difficult time period for us, but we are going to survive. At the end of the day, we are going to be victorious against all of these en- enemies that will come in and survive it. Good. Right? Now, he's going to go one step further. One step further in order to try to solve this issue. Use of history for polemical purposes. He wants to use history to prove to them that they're going to survive this. So he begins by telling them. He goes back. My brothers. Term of endearment. Right? Don't you know that during the days of Nebuchadnezzar, they, they forced the Jews to do idolatry. Right? And of all of those, the only person that was saved was Daniel. Right? These four personalities. Now, think about to what use is he making history right now? And compared to, for example, Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein will invoke Nebuchadnezzar, period of glory and power 
of the Islamic people, Babylonians, for his self-aggrandizement, correct, and Yus Saladin, who was the great 13th century conqueror, who reconquered Yerushalayim from the Crusaders, from the Christians. So now, he used history for polemical purposes, Saddam Hussein does. Hanambam also is using history for a particular purpose right now. That's simply just according to this in order to enlighten you what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He has a purpose in writing this particular piece of history. What's his purpose? So he first says, Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king, forced the Jewish people to do idolatry. Right, famous book of Daniel. <coughs> we learn all of this. Perek Bet tells the whole entire story of Daniel. Four were saved. So Tavanish Midor went out at the end. He's destroyed. Who is destroyed? Nebuchadnezzar is destroyed. Who did so? Haboret Aleh. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises to safeguard us from all of these that rise up against us. History proves it, he says, that just stand strong and eventually HaKadosh Baruch Hu will destroy Islam. It's a good historical teaching. Now think about if this were us today. Let's say we were living in Egypt. And let's say you were now forced, oppressed, persecuted to change your religion. And a rabbi from America who was living in a relatively free society writes to you a letter. And what's he going to use to strengthen you? This has been the story. We've often had this historical persecution and oppression. You're just one more link in that chain of persecution. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu has always saved us from the Adam. the end of the day, you will be saved. It's not so theoretical. This is practical. This happens to Jews all the time. In Syria, Egypt, where it was. Hmm? That's his point. War in Egypt, the problem, the concern was not what he's addressing. He's addressing forced conversion. Israel as a nation is sought. But here's where he writes that all this world is sold except for three. Daniel, Hanel, Mishael. We're in Egypt. We're not worried that Judaism will survive. We're worried about us. Right. We know Judaism will survive. Right, because, yeah. But you are you're more concerned your physical about your physical safety. Your family, your immediate family. We immediate family. We have hundreds of hundreds of right. Jews here now. Right, yeah. So, it, well, we have to address that issue that. also. You're right that he may be concerned about the long-range consequences. He might say to them, I'm not going to tell you the answer, say to them, be willing to sacrifice your lives, physical safety in your lives, as martyrs, as Kedoshesh Shem Hashem, that's Kedush Hashem, do that, do that and it's fine. And Baruch Hu will give you reward in the world to come. That's fine. That might be one of his answers. We might say the opposite. He might be saying, you know, your physical survival is so important and Islam is not an idolatry. Therefore, pretend you're Islamist, that you're followers of the Islamic religion. And this comes to Ya'avod. This small period of these fanatical Islamic people will end. You'll be fine. History is going to teach us what to do over here. So his first address to history, here, I'm going to get to your point yet, is that here we have Nebuchadnezzar, Melech Bavel, forced Jews to do Zarah, and Lunatam and Nasim, only these four were saved. So the Vanish Midor, and the Kaswar who destroyed him, Nebuchadnezzar, whatever. Everything was actually done away with. Right? At the end of the day, he was destroyed. His way of life, the Torah, the all that was wiped away. Don't worry. Hazayim met Lemashaita. And truth, which is what? The Jewish religion. Torah, Jewish religion had returned to what it actually was. Not only that. Another example. Second Beit HaMikdash. 
What period is this? The Hellenistic period of time, which is towards before the common era, story of Hanukkah, which you know all about, right? You read all the books on that. What happened? When the evil Greeks became powerful, and they decreed horrible persecutions, edicts against the Jewish people to destroy religion, and they decreed against them, meaning you have to desecrate Shabbat, and you must desecrate the Berit Milah. You did all of this. Where is this from? The book of the Maccabees, which is not a canonized book, right? We don't know why exactly, but it's not canonized. book of the Mashmarim, book of the Maccabees, not used, correct? All this happened, of course, over here. Every single Jewish person to write, in, on his garment, there's no portion in the God of Israel. There's an overwhelming, complete, total attempt at destroying the Jewish religion. And you have to engrave in the horn of your ox. The same exact point. I have nothing to do with the God of Israel. All this. And then I have to plow with this ox. All that I have. Right? All this he quotes in footnote 5. All the source of this comes from. This is all they want us to do over here. Right? And then, they, 52 years they stood with these gezerot, these decrees against the Jewish people. 52 years. We had to suffer with this, right? Then what happens? Harkach, then, this is the coup de grace, this is the great wonderful conclusion to this. Ibed, destroyed, their rule, their religions, together. So what are you guys worried about? This is, it's gonna pass. And so too our rabbis have said in multiple places, <coughs> right? Multiple places. Masechet Berachot, Masechet Shabbat, other places. One time the evil empire, Yavan, Greece, had decreed these persecutions, these decrees against the Jewish people. Shalom, Israel, and eventually what happens? Gosh nullified that decree and this peace on Israel. There was a Gezerah. You have a Gezerah. God had nullified that Gezerah. We'll destroy it. And what a wonderful conclusion to this story. So this should be, we hope, feeling of security that this too shall pass. Who will save you? One does not want to read this in the context of the Holocaust. Because it didn't happen then. Then you go six million Jews and it didn't happen in that context. Sorry? It happened after a lot of pain. But what? It happened after. Oh, you mean that? Good. Okay, good. Okay, good. Like you said, the individual got... Right, correct. So that, that, that's the point. That it was a little too little too late. So you're right. There's no more Nazism. But la da tam. But la The religion Not always. in general survives, but people all... In every persecution, that person killed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were times, let's say, in Halab... In 1843, you had the um, famous Damascus blood libel, where no, no Jew was harmed because the United States intervened. I think it was um, Secretary of State at that time, I forget what it was. He intervened with a letter to, to, uh, to Syria, blood libel in 43, and there was a great rejoicing that the decree of blood libel they found a Christian kid killed, he was a Matzah and all that stuff. It was the last manifestation of the blood libel. It's an interesting article in the Encyclopedia today on blood libel. That was the last time, 1843, we had blood libel, but it was a thousand year myth. Mm-hmm. Sorry? Till now, right. Now we have protocol design again. It's correct. It's true. So there's, there were a few isolated times when there were multiple decrees against Jewish people, but Gamzi Avar. Um, all kinds of, especially Halab 
situations where the change of the king, change of the, uh, the immediate change of the ruler, or just uh, you paid him off, whatever it was. So that did happen sometimes. But you're also right that a majority of the times it seems to be that the Jews paid a physical price for this, but religion did, did remain. That's true. Yeah, I'm sorry? Do we know how long it took for the letter to go out and back and what exactly was happening at that time? Were people dying? No, no, this is pre. Pre-conversion and pre. They wrote him a letter saying, what do we do now? So the, presu- the presumption is that six month variation. It took six months to get from Egypt to Yemen. And um, they wrote him a letter. They said, look, this is what they're telling us to do. They're giving us time. They're giving us six months or whatever, I forget the period of time, to perhaps save ourselves or submit to martyrdom. That's our choice. What should we do? That was the first issue that he's dealing with over here. So he's writing this back and he says that he had, he had time, maybe it was a year. Haman gave a year, for example. So it might have been a year. They wrote him a letter. What should we do now? Right? Okay, so what? But later on, there's going to be another issue that we're going to deal with, which is a false messiah. Which means that a false messiah comes along and says that, follow me. I'm the true messiah. I'll lead you out of this mess. False messiah. So now I'm to deal with false messianism, which is again an issue in this work, which we'll get to later. Okay, you with me? Yes? That you have shmad, it's going to be nullified. Batel. Right. So don't worry. This is point over here. So the first level over here of defense against this is to promise them that this will be nullified. His source, his proof, is history. History has shown us that what happens again and again, he doesn't really tell you that the Jews were destroyed in the interim. That's not going to be a very secure feeling. He just gives you the beginning and the end. Decree, nullification. Great. In between, something happened. That's true. He doesn't tell them what happened in the midst of it. And he's going to use tried and true biblical sources in order for us to be convinced this is going to happen. Because we promised already Yaakov Avinu even though the foreign nation is going to enslave his children and afflict them and rise up against them, him, meaning the Jewish people, shall remain and stand strong. And those who afflict and oppress them, shall quickly pass from the scene, be done away with. Now, where? Question. Where do we find that? This article promises to... Yaakov. Well, is a promise to Abraham. To Abraham, your children shall be dirt of the earth. And now that I'm interpreting this phrase. So now, first of all, you could raise the question, where do we get this over here regarding Yaakov? Certainly, what happens? There it's promised. Gamma, um, was it, Pasuk in Pereshit, Perek, Tet, Vav, 15, which talks about the dream, where, Kishwakul promises, your children are going to be enslaved, and they'll be saved from that. That's Abraham, it's not Yaakov. So that's an interesting question. He does, in fact, tell Yaakov, when you go down to Egypt, don't worry about it, you'll come out from Egypt. But this formulation really is much close to Abraham. And now he's going to interpret this book. What does it mean, on a Peshat level, for Hashem to promise Abraham that your children will be like the dust of the earth. It means there will be a lot of them. Right? Now, that's not going to serve Harambam's purposes. So now Harambam is going to attempt an interpretation. Right? And you tell me if it's Peshat or Dirash. Right? 
If it's Rashi, I don't have a problem with it. But it's a Pshar of the Rash. What's wrong with this Pasuk? Kemosh Neiman, your children shall be as plentiful as the dust. Kloman, what does that mean? Even though they are given over to what? To being trampled upon. Correct? Trampled upon. Footnote 3. Kapat as dirt. Everybody tramples on dirt. Harambam's point over here. Sof, Shikberu, At the end, they will be, the Jews will, will emerge victorious and shall conquer, vanquish the enemies. Peshat or Dirash? Dirash. Everybody agrees with Dirash? No, his usage is Dirash. In, in the original, it meant, but he's not. Wait, what do it mean in the original? No, the I want to know numbers. Huh? Numbers. Numbers only. Okay, good. The Pasuk means you will be surviving. He's borrowing. Here. No, no, what are you saying? You're saying it means survive. You're saying, you're saying that it means survive. You're saying it means numbers. He says the Pshan of the Spirit. Your children shall be plentiful. I'll go with it. So, so there's nothing about survival in the Pasuk. I would say the opposite. So now, for me to Doresh, now I can't because you call it a Doresh, I can't have a stick with this, that there's two problems. One is Afar and one is Kokvei Hashemayim. And I see these as not accidental use of the natural elements, but it's intentional, indicating that, yes, you will be downtrodden, afar, but ultimately you will be kochavesh ennobled, high up, spiritually uplifted, as the kochavim, as the stars in the heaven. You think it's actual use, accidental use of afar and kochavim? Or the intent was to show that, yes, it'll be a long, difficult road, you'll be trod upon, no doubt, but eventually you'll achieve kochavim hashemayim. That's the last you think Ram just said, or is that the intent of Hashem when telling Abraham his promise? It's nice, but <laughs> Okay, the last. Then there's another one, Kehol Hayam. Oh, yeah, it would be different, okay. There's another one, Afaha, Ares, okay. That's not in Bereshit, Kehol Hayam. Is that in Bereshit, it's not in Oyam. That's in Nabi Oshaya. Is it Oshaya? No, 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 I agree. No, no, I agree that it certainly has that primary meaning to it. But is there also the meaning that my question to you then would be, if that's the case, why not use, if you're telling a father, your children are going to be plentiful. Tell them like dirt, or tell them like the stars. It's the same numbers, both cannot be counted. No, those days maybe it's not the same numbers. They don't what? know that many stars. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't use them at all. If you only get his numbers, okay, maybe. And you're right, we, we look at, but although, you know, David Melchipedic, head of, of, of Tehillim, talks about how plentiful the numbers are. Columbus, okay. but, uh, think of it doesn't matter, but, uh, but, but, but a lot. It meant a why lot. Sorry? Then, why why use both? Both? Right. Why use both? If not to indicate... That's the point. How numerous are going to be? So use Afar. You can't, can't even count it. Use Afar. Use Kehol Hayam. Well, she does use Kehol Hayam. In Bereshit, she does not Kehol Hayam, if I remember correctly. Uh, I, I, right. Kehol Hayam, Shemone. Right. Yeah, correct. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. This, 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 also I don't think it has qualification. So why is it... Uh, just, just different metaphors. Okay, so Charlie might be right. There's multiple metaphors. Okay, all multiple metaphors. Perhaps. You wonder whether or not there's something else intended. Perhaps yes, perhaps no. I buy what you're saying, that this is a dirash. To go from dirt to kuchavim is a dirash. Okay, you convince me. I'll buy that. Harambam uses this dirash over here. Now, interesting question over here. What do they think? Now, if it's a dirash, did they say, you know, your answer is a dirash short. So I don't buy it. Or pshat. He's saying, Hashem promised Abraham, right? Promised. 
Yaakov, this whole entire context, right? That they're going to be trampled and they're going to rise up. If you can't sell them, then there's no point in using it. So, it's a cultural thing. It's very important. When, when, and it affects the Sephardic Jew just as much as it affects the Muslims today, because whether it's because it's Middle East, whatever. Quoting uh, Pesukim, whether they relate yes. or they don't relate, has a major impact. Absolutely. Has Correct. Correct. Impact. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Yeah. What, what, and they do that. They quote uh, things from the Quran. Absolutely. Style of writing. Style of writing. It has nothing to do with the quotation. Well, the the quotation is very motivational. Quotation is very motivational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. This, no, no. This, it this relates to their common heritage. That, that invokes salvation. It's right. Invokes no, no, salvation. but why? The rational Peshat wise. No, it, it, no, 100% the rational in this context. In this context. In the Torah context. In the Torah context, it implies salvation, implies glory, implies greatness. Right, okay. There is no question about it. Which word means that how you come up with that is not, uh, is not easy. That you can argue for but it certainly implies glory and salvation. Wait, Kukhabim implies glory. Do I use Afar? It was step on it, because it's step on it. meant in that context. meant by Hashem, you mean? Yeah, by Hashem. That what? Did you be trampled? Hashem is promising Yaakov. He used Afar Ha'ars. Now, was it the best choice, not the best choice? You can do what Hashem meant by but for sure, Yaakov understood that that was a positive thing. And every Dirt being positive? Because of numbers. Maybe we survival. Maybe is. survival. We don't know what the message is. I, I tell you, Which, I don't know what here the or there? Is. Not here, not there. Oh. Okay. <laughs> what? I don't know what the message is. He is quoting a person. He's quoting a person that will give us a certain motivation. Yeah, what's the motivation? Okay. The motivation is that you, now you, you're going to survive. Out of the depression, You'll be survived. I'm going to tell you what to, how to act. Now that you're not depressed anymore, I'm going to tell you how to conduct. Okay. And I think that's what he's doing. Okay, so no, the Pasuk is very. Emotionally laden, <laughs> motivation. Emotional. I agree with all that. Right. Yeah. His use of the pasuk over here is to motivate, to excite, and saying that trust that you'll be trampled upon, and then you will survive it. So it is motivational. So there were much more senses than Rambam was. I'm not. I Yes, I think so. Hold on. Yeah, one second. Yeah. Seems to be more sensitive in the sense of he he used many times, like in the reading I see, he used the pasuk that the beginning of it is positive. And it concludes negative. Right, correct. When we yeah. have those, we, in our days, we stop using them. Right. He tends to use the half that's positive. Correct. Okay. Absolutely, absolutely. Which, absolutely he, correct. he did it, we stopped, that we, we want the whole thing positive or not at all. Right. Like when you come in Shema, uh, 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 we, we don't it. like to say in cloud, I know here some has an internet cloud, because it's really negative. It's very negative. It's very negative. So, so you take it and you <laughs> take it and you'll be thrown away from that good land. And then you say, it's very negative. It's thrown off this good land. So we don't I've always wondered about that. Right. 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 I, I, I wondered. Don't, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I finished the Pasuk and then I, uh, and then I said, so you said, so you said, you said, very interesting, good point. Right. So, Harambam was not. So, I'm assuming they don't know the rest of the Pasuk. So, and when he wrote, you read with us, Hakamim of York, he calls the first half that's positive, and he doesn't mention the second half, right. of course. And I said, is he insulting them, or is he complimenting them? Right, right. He was complimenting, but he used the pastor that's going to... It's very negative, right, very point. negative, right. He'll have to... Correct. No, it's interesting, is okay. It, or is it that... Is it, is it, <laughs> right, how do you read it? How do you read it? Good, I buy that. It's interesting because you're right. This style of writing to use the sukim, it's a lost art. In this culture, it's a lost art. You have to know Tanakh by heart. I am trained biblically to write that way. That when I write a Hebrew letter, I will, whatever phrase pops in, I will, even part phrases, I will 
utilized. But again, that, that you're right, that it is a lost art. Ours. The style of the Hakamim of the Middle East. Right. No, no, it's, 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 it lends credibility. It lends credibility, it oh. lends strength, lends emphasis, lends emotion. You root yourself in the... In, in Tanakh, right. It's very strong. This is, your question over here was what? That you think it's, you think no, it's so Tanakh, you don't care? Same thing. Yeah, of course, it just used Daniel. It was not definitely Tanakh. No, no, I don't, that's another question. You didn't raise the question then. Hold on to that well, then. Right now. You weren't concerned that as well. That's correct. Them. That's a good point. But the difference to me would be, but it may not be their difference. I'm not sure. That if you give a Darash... As opposed to Peshapshat means what the text really says. It's there. It has a certain power to it because we did this this morning in this first class. Peshat is what's really there and it has a certain power to it. So that's what I have to interpret it a certain way. This is not Devan Hashem. It's what I'm saying. Peshat is Devan Hashem. So if God said it, I'm guaranteed salvation, I have no questions. If you're interpreting the Pasuk in a certain kind of way, it doesn't have such strength to it, such power to it. Because your interpretation of the Pasuk has other interpretations. It doesn't excite me at all. Now that might be my modern day academic view of Shadrash, they may have said that, as you're saying, that even Zadash, it's still strong enough to stand on its own. So you might be right. Coming from the Lama. So, you know, they're not going to put it down. Uh, no, but it's Zadash. It's his opinion that that's what the Pasuk means. The Pasuk meant, and again, he might have thought this is a Pshat. We don't know that. We, you think it's clearly Zadash, what he said. He might have thought Pshat, as I'm saying. Afar, Kochavim, from trampled upon to great significance. Right, that's my didash, my pshat on it, quote unquote. He might have thought it's a pshat. Not sure. Hold on. But if they thought it's a pshat, fine. If they thought it's his didash, he's kind of playing with words. What does it mean? Similar to, let's say we um, here's an interesting example of that of this question. And this one I might have mentioned to you one other context. Chambarov told us in sixth grade when we raised the question, how dare uh, Yosef call his brothers Miragilim spies? When he knows that's what he lied, we were sixth graders, we were very upset about that, we wanted truth, he's lying to them. He knows they're not spies, he calls them spies, he knows it, he lied, right? Clear lie. Sixth grader. <coughs> that was too sophisticated for sixth graders. For us, we said, we lied. We don't, we told, don't lie. He lied. That's, that's where we stopped with it. Brilliant came up with the word Miragilim, of course, right? That's the way he spelled Miragilim. Mem, re, shud, gimelam, yud, mem, right? And he explained. He didn't lie. Mibene, Rahel, Kinatem, Li, Ishma'alim, Mechartem. Right? It's called Notricon in, in, uh, Dirash language. Right. Mibane, Rahel, Kinatem, Li, Ishma'alim, Mechartem. They didn't understand it. Who? They didn't. Correct. Yeah, but we did. We said, wow! That's what we said. He fooled them. He fooled us too, apparently. He fooled us too. We were so overwhelmed. He didn't lie. It was great. It was wonderful. Amazing. Good, very good. Yeah, no, it was great. It was wonderful. No, so I remember it 42 years later, so it must have been very good. So, if that is the truth of Yosef, and he didn't really lie, that's what I really intend by that word, let's say, the way he implied 42 years ago, then, okay, you got us. You're right. He didn't lie. However, if this is your dinash that you made up, as I say now, 40 years later, that who are you kidding, that he really did lie to them, for a better end, for a noble end, then lie for noble ends, fine. The unjustifies the means, we're saying. Then, okay, it's a different story. One is Devar Hashem, one is the Chambaruch, you know, uh, 40 years ago, who convinced six graders that you said in line. You're bored of Peshat? I'm sorry, this? Yeah. Then? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> 42 years ago, as a, as a 12th grade, a 12-year-old, 11-year-old, we said, wow. So is the <laughs> We believed it. We believed it. And we believed it. Everybody said, wow. It was a 
Great point. You are, it's right. I remember hanging on the wood. It's right. He didn't lie. See, he told you so. He told each other. He told you he didn't lie. He doesn't lie. It's what you tell. It's appropriate for sixth graders, perhaps. Not for adults, maybe. Maybe it is. But that addresses the question of did Yosef lie or not. So it's what they believe. So they may believe Dirash is either shot, number one, or they may say that Dirash is so powerful they didn't think as if it's I'm saying this. They, say, they read it, Rambam said it, we buy it. They didn't think Dirash shot, that was an issue that I bring to the table. He may not have brought that to the table at all. They may not have thought about that in that context. Right? A whole different story. They heard the Pasuk, they recognize it, a motivational, educational, powerful, emotional, and they walked away saying, what? Great. Shadrash is irrelevant to them. By the way out. They're going to find their way. Correct. Right. Or deeper meaning. That's yeah. That's another way of solving <laughs> that problem very easily. It's all, no, right. Absolutely. So, at the end of the day, now it's interesting that I would have liked him to quote the Kochavim Pasuk, you know, right? Hold on for just a second. But it is kind of right over here. That, that's my point. Afar Kochavim. You'll be Kochavim with you. It's a great. He doesn't. I don't know why not. Now, this is now allegorical. This is metaphorical. This is clearly Dirash, right? The first seems to indicate that he sees that as Pshat. Because then he says, also metaphorically, right? Metaphorically, footnote four. In the same way that dirt in the end, if you if you're riding if you're walking in the desert, you kick up sand, you kick up dirt, right? You're walking, you're already kicking it up. So too, the same way that the dirt, goes on to the people that are trampling upon it, but it always remains on your shoes all over you. It always remains. But at the end of the day, those who trample won't stand. Now we'll go to what Yeshayahu. Good. And he told us, in the name of God Himself, this is a quote, right? This nation, as long as in exile, call me whoever thinks, who thinks, to overwhelm it, to be the choice against it, and to, to uh, persecute it, if Shah Maybe you'll be somewhat successful, right? If shot, this is what he's called for Yishayah, right? In the beginning. Correct? However, about the Harito at the end of the day, Yishlach Baruch Hu, Moshiach promises to send a savior. a savior, good, and he will remove from them sickness and pain. Good? At the end of the day, we are going to make it through. Bad, bad story. Ali, Ilam, upon me, Rosuri, Madai, Bukul, Al Hatash, Pati. But at the end of the day, all of its pains and groanings and pains and all that, Hishbati, Shabbat, I've stopped. So it's a very nice pasuk from Yeshayah, right? Which proves his point. Good. At the end of the day, the people shall survive. Go to Haboreh, and again, this is all pasukim to excite, to motivate, to energize, to comfort. Don't worry about a thing. So to Akash Baruch promised. Our Nevi'im. We will not be done away with. He will not destroy us completely. And we will always be there. We will always be a pious people. No nation whatsoever. And in the same way, he takes another level higher. Same way it's impossible to nullify the existence of Akash Baruch Hu. Almighty always has to exist. He's what the Ramah calls it in philosophical language necessarily existent. He must exist. God cannot self-destroy. Correct? He must exist. 
God's power is limited that it cannot self-destruct. Yeah, it's very nice. It's always there. It cannot self-destruct. So he's not omnipotent because he can't do something. What can he do? He can't self-destruct. Okay, that's good. So the same way that Eve shot is impossible, that the existence of Akashwarakhu should not be nullified, can he have Shash and Oved? So too. Now, what's he doing subtly over here? He's tying us up to Akash Baruch Hu, to the Almighty. saying that we are on the same page. The same way he's omnipresent, we will be always there. If shots are possible, you must at the end feel excited by this. You feel in line with this. You feel elevated by this. You feel noble by this. And you might even say at the end of the day, I'm willing to give my life my religion because it's a beautiful religion. Right? I'm excited. I'm emotionally tied up and bound up to this. Impossible for us to but Tim and Amar as Malachi said, I have not changed. It's a great this is a great pasuk because the here is clear. I have not changed. You're still around. Malachi is the last Navi, fifty four the common era. So it's wonderful. The last Divan Hashem is about us about what? You will survive. So too he has told us and strengthened us. He meets that never will he become disgusted with us to destroy us. And if we anger him and we violate his commandments. So even if you're the worst person in the world, at the end of the day, Borei Olam will always bring back and always be involved with us. Because you might say, if I sin, he'll destroy me. If I sin, he'll abandon me. No, even though you sin and do transgressions all day long, he promises that at the end of the day, he will bring us back to him. Right? As Yimriel says, another very beautiful pasuk, As, it's a beautiful pasuk from Yirmiyahu. 31. Is it possible to measure the extent of the heavens? Interesting that somebody 2,500 years ago had the concept of the impossibility of measuring the heavens. Is that obvious to everybody that you can't measure the heavens? No. Not then. Not then. That's what I mean. Yeah, now. Well, no, now we know you certainly cannot, but they didn't know that then. That's interesting. I mean, you might think, you know, the heavens, okay, so from there to there, that's, they could say, look, we can't do it practically, but theoretically we can measure it. Sorry? Yeah, it's that. It's that. Exactly. Say. It's right there. Exactly. So he says, no. In the same way, God has said, as it's impossible to measure the heavens above, and as impossible, for you to investigate the foundation, the absolute heavens is the foundation principles of the earth, upon which the earth is based. There's a below, meaning the, the foundation upon which you build the earth. Right? However they understood that. If as impossible it is to measure this and that, so too it's impossible for me to become emas, maas, disgusted with all the Jewish people, whatever they did. Because the Jews might have been saying that. We've sinned, there's no hope, we're destroyed, God will never forgive us. No! His job is to strengthen them, encourage them. Even if there's going to be a hurban, guess what? God will bring you back. Question. You have hurban in 586. Why the Jews found a community in Babel and survived as Jews ultimately producing the Babylonian Talmud? Why that happened? As opposed to, 722 before the common era, what happens? The ten other tribes are lost, dispersed. Why did that happen? The Meow planted the seeds of renewal, planted the seeds of return, even as they were being exiled. You'll be coming home again. That's it. Imagine that. So they came home again. It's an astounding statement. 
Ten northern tribes lost. Two southern tribes always knew the way home because of what Yemiah taught. That there's not going to be absolute anger or disregard or meisa. No. Eventually, God promises you'll be brought back because He always will love you no matter what you do. Your child misbehaves intensely so. You want to teach a child that whatever you do, I may have to actually leave the house right now or the room right now, but I, but I promise you, you'll be coming back to the dinner table or back to the house. At some point or other, you don't want to leave where you've closed the door and you cannot return. Even but a minute, if God forbid a child is about to intermarry and you make the point clear, that's a line you cannot cross. And the kid says, no, I must, this is my love, my this, my that, I must intermarry. What you want to do with the answer is always leave that door open. You always want to say that, look, whatever it is, I may not be able to deal with it now. I can, I cannot, whatever it is to me, come back. The door is always open for you. Right? That's what you want to teach the child. So the Otuak Hispanic tells us, you're going to do whatever you're going to do. No problem. Eventually, you will return. So too he says, And even when you're far away, no matter where you are, I have not been disgusted or angry with you. I will attempt to destroy you. I will not violate my covenant with them. I am the Lord your God. Absolute, motivational, powerful, positive here. It's very encouraging. Very, very encouraging that Bore Olam will always be there for us. So now telling the Jews of Teman, you're the same. God will not violate, because they may be saying, maybe God abandoned us, maybe we've sinned. No, he's now, the first point in this whole argument is that you should know that this already happened in the past. Pranitzad, Yavan, they survived it. God says it's going to happen, and you may be trampled upon, but eventually you will rise up to the top. And God has promised, as God is eternal, so to the promise eternal, so to you will be eternal, you will survive this. And now just one more line. This is the point. Now, my brothers, words of endearment, be powerful, be courageous. Rely rely on these true Pesukim that we've just quoted to you. Don't be afraid of these Gezerot if they become strong against you. And don't let it make you fearful. The powerful hand of the enemy and the weakness of our people. Because that again is a very powerful argument against us. Against Hanabam. Why? They're so strong. We're so weak. They're the right religion. Is what they are saying to us. And that's what many Jews believe. Because of the power and success of the enemy. Obviously Christianity in its context. Or Islam in its context. Is the right. That's what Jews are saying at this point. Saying don't worry about it. This is a temporary phenomenon. There's only one slice of the pie. One little, tiny slice of the pie. Don't let it discourage you. Don't let it make you fearful. They're very powerful. And we are very weak. No. Now he's to interpret all this. What's it really all about? All this is an order. It's a test for your fortitude. That ought to show everybody that your belief in Hashem stands strong. Your love for Hashem in this world. Good. And they just wait until HaKadosh Baruch Hu will strengthen the true religion in times like this and you'll see that people that will maintain the truth of our religion are the Hachamim, those who know it, who fear God, the pure, innocent, cleansed, righteous seed of Yaakov. As we say in Yoel, those who are left behind, those who remain, those who are going, that Hashem calls out. Okay.
So we'll stop here. Very positive, very powerful, very wonderful words of encouragement to the Rambam. That's the first step. Are you feeling encouraged by this? It's nice how he, how he goes from... He starts by saying that they're faithful and true and they don't... And then he says it's even if... Right. Even if you did or one does this no problem, sin or whatever, no problem. God Correct. still wants and will keep you. Right. So that's a very encouraging statement. But this is good. Thank you. Minha 425, he said? No, 425, I think. Sorry?